Welcome to the audio podcast of the sermons from First Reformed Church in Edgerton, Minnesota. For more information on First Reformed, go to edgertonfrc.org or our Facebook page. Well, I have been actually looking at this date on the calendar for several weeks as we look to conclude our time in the book of Genesis. But as I began to prepare this week, I'm actually kind of surprised we are here in Genesis 50. Together, we have journeyed through the story of creation and of the fall and the immediate promise of the Savior. And from there, we have seen the unfolding drama of redemption in the people of God. We've seen the murder of Abel by Cain, the flood, and the Tower of Babel. And then we came into contact with the first of the major patriarchs in the book of Genesis as we learned of Abraham and his barren wife. But we saw that God made a promise to give them a child. And despite her being unable to conceive, and even though she was advanced in age, God brought them Isaac. Now Isaac had struggles of his own, but God was faithful to give him children And we discovered through God's revelation to Isaac's wife, Rebecca, that the younger of the two twins would be the one on whom this covenant promise would rest. And there were obstacles in the life of this younger son, Jacob, and most of them were self-inflicted. But through his life, we found that God's hand was upon him. God's hand was guiding him and causing Jacob to trust God instead of scheming to do things by his own power. And during our final series here in Genesis, we have been seeing God's hand upon the generations of Jacob. The favored son, Joseph, was sold into slavery and ended up being imprisoned for something he didn't do. But just as we, as we have seen throughout all of Genesis, God was at work. And in perhaps the most astounding way that we have seen so far, as this Hebrew slave who was in prison rises to power in Egypt to rescue the people of God from a famine. Now this has been the underlying theme and the underlying application throughout the time that we've spent with Joseph. It's been an amazing reminder to us of the truth that God keeps His promises and that God works all things together for good for those who love Him. As we find ourselves in the wake of Jacob's death this morning, we see that Joseph has understood all of this very deeply. A few chapters back, he stated this to his brothers. But today, we see Joseph once again utter his confidence in the sovereign hand of God's providence upon their lives. And so as we come to the end of Genesis today, we're going to line out our three points once again, and this will help us navigate the text and keep us moving through it today. Now the first part of the passage shows us that Joseph and his brothers are faithful to take Jacob's remains to that cave in Machpelah, that he might be buried with those in his family that have died before him. The sons come together to do what was requested of them, this request of Jacob that showed his great faith in something beyond this life. Secondly, we see that once the brothers fulfill their obligation to their father, 
They're worried about the ramifications of their past actions towards their brother. Now, you can understand this reaction, can't you? Uh, They did a pretty terrible thing to Joseph, and he has reacted decently towards them since they have been reunited. But is this just because Joseph didn't want to hurt his father by getting revenge on his brothers? What we find is that Joseph does understand the providence of God. And he doesn't take revenge on the ones responsible for selling him into slavery and causing such pain in his life. And finally, we see a conclusion to the book of Genesis. We have been going through from generations of different families throughout this journey in Genesis. Our most recent section has been the generations of Jacob, and it ends with the death of Joseph. While the idea is that we are looking at the entire family of Jacob, the focus has been on Joseph and how God has saved his people from famine by bringing them into Egypt. Now we see the end of Joseph's life. And that even though the people of God have been promised the land of Canaan, they remain in the land of Goshen. They are in Egypt, not the promised land. But Joseph, Joseph believes the promises of God. And he dies in faith just as his father did. Now as we land in the beginning of chapter 50, we're drawn back to what we finished up with last week in chapter 59 as we see Joseph grieving the death of his father here. At the end of chapter 49, we read that Jacob was gathered to his people. The one that we have followed the longest through the narratives of Genesis has come to his end after a very long life. And here we see Joseph weeping over him. And Moses, in writing this once again, does an excellent job of not only drawing us into the story with a scene that we can easily imagine, but he gives us an emotional insight into the lives of of these heroes of the faith. And we seem to see this in Joseph most often, don't we? I don't think we have seen any individual in Genesis who cries more than Joseph. And every time he does, isn't it relatable? Don't we understand his feelings of emotion? We consider the story of Joseph and we understand the extreme emotional journey that he has been on. And of course, we get how he would weep over his father here. But as we consider what Joseph must have been feeling, we also have to remember this obligation that is now upon him. He has made a promise to his father that he will take his remains to the land of Canaan for him to be buried in that cave in Machpelah. And so we see something interesting here in verse 2 that we haven't seen before in Genesis at all. Joseph has Jacob embalmed. Now, this is not something that Hebrew folk did. As you probably know from history class or maybe from the History Channel, embalming was important in the Egyptian culture. And this was because of their view of the afterlife. And the idea was preservation of the identity being retained into what they thought the next life was. Now that was not the purpose of Joseph having Jacob embalmed, though. That's not what Hebrews believe. This was about the journey back to Canaan. And the cave in Machpelah is not just across the street. It's not an easy journey and not a short one. And the purpose here 
in Joseph having Jacob preserved is not that he has adopted the Egyptian view of the afterlife, but they have a job that they need to do. And following this Egyptian custom will make it easier for them to fulfill the pact that they've made with their father. But we also get some greater insight into how greatly Joseph is viewed by the Egyptian people in all of this. We see how long the embalming process requires, but we also see that there is a time of grieving for the Egyptians of 70 days. Now, we, we get what this means, right? Um, it's not like Jacob was buds with a bunch of Egyptian people, and they're sad because their good friend has died. That's, that's not the point. The number of people who probably even knew Jacob even existed was likely extremely small. The idea here is that Joseph, the great and respected governor of Egypt who guided them through the famine, has lost his father. And this is an act of respect and love towards Joseph. But as we read of this, we also get the sense that this also is letting us know of the commitment of Jacob's son to fulfill their promise to their father. Once all of this time has passed, Joseph goes before Pharaoh and shares what he desires to do. Again, we see the respect that Pharaoh has for Joseph here. This amounts to what is the most substantial funeral possession that we see in all of Scripture, what we see here in verses 4-9. through We have an embalming and a very long period of mourning. Then it isn't just a group of Jacob's family that makes the trip. That's what you and I would expect, right? But we read that there were servants of Pharaoh, elders from Pharaoh's household, and elders of Egypt. And we even see chariots and horsemen went along for protection. And this isn't just elaborate for the sake of being fancy. It is significant that not only Jacob's family cares, but the whole of Egypt shows that they care for Jacob, for Joseph. There was honor for his family in Egypt. And we should feel something here as we think to the future. There's some foreshadowing going on here that's important. It's an important con- contrast that we have to draw out here as we, as we finish Genesis. Now, we're going we're gonna to come back later on to the continuation of this story a few months down the road when we start the book of Exodus. But it's important that we think about this now as well because you and I already know the story. We know what's next for this family of Jacob. Right now, Jacob and Joseph, we see the honor that they have in Egypt. They're treated with more than just respect here. They are in a place of honor. And look at who helps to deliver Jacob back to the land of Canaan. Who helps make sure that Jacob gets to the promised land? It's Pharaoh and Pharaoh's army. Think about that for a second. Think about the significance there. And what we know from the book of Exodus What's the contrast as we go several hundred years forward to the book of Exodus? As we look at the future? Well, when we get to Exodus, Jacob and Joseph's people are not respected. They are not in a place of honor anymore. As we've seen in the previous chapters, the Pharaoh in Genesis honors them. But when we get to the future, we see that the people of God 
have taken advantage of what Pharaoh did for them. They have been fruitful. They have multiplied. They're allowed to thrive in Genesis, right? And up to the time of the beginning of Exodus. But in Exodus, what happens? Genesis, they're fruitful and multiply. But what happens in Exodus? The Pharaoh actually kills the male children. Right? The exact opposite happens. And Moses gives Pharaoh the opportunity to allow the family of Jacob to go to the land of Canaan, right? The Pharaoh in Genesis delivers Jacob to Canaan. But what happens in Exodus? The Pharaoh keeps them from going to Canaan. And instead of using the army like we see here in Genesis, where Jacob is delivered by the army, the Pharaoh at the beginning of Exodus, he actually uses his army to try to keep the people out of the land of Canaan. Are you seeing the contrast here? How the people were favored in Genesis and what is coming that we know in Exodus. And so with that, we see why Moses has taken such care to give us these details here at the end of Genesis. Why are all these details here? Well, because it's going to show that Joseph and Jacob were honored, but then in the future, when they are taken into slavery, they are not. By the time the people are reading this, later on down the road, we see a substantial change has occurred. And so as we come to verses 10 through 14, we see the honor of Jacob was so significant that even the Canaanites noticed it and named a place in the land of Canaan after this grieving that happened there. And notice how Moses describes it to us here. This place is called Abel Mizraim, and the only real detail we get is that it's beyond the Jordan. This is another important detail for us to think about going forward in the future. What's significant about it being beyond the Jordan? It's in the promised land. Where this has happened is in the promised land. The Egyptians have come all this way and they have delivered Jacob. They are in the promised land. And the emphasis here is not just on the Egyptians and they're coming along for the procession, but on the fact that the children of Jacob have done exactly what was asked of them. We see that the remains of Jacob find their resting place in this cave in Machpelah where their ancestors are buried. The promise has been kept to Jacob. Jacob is in the promised land where he belongs. But we're quickly reminded of the state of affairs here. The land promised to them has not been possessed by the people of God. And this reminder comes to us in the fact that everyone goes back to Egypt. Here they are. They're in the promised land. They're in Canaan. They're there. Jacob's body is there. But they leave. They go back to Egypt. They go back to Goshen. Why? Because the land isn't theirs yet. They have not taken hold of it. Jacob rests in this tiny little plot of land that Abraham purchased many years back. But that is not the possession of the land that was promised by God yet. And as we move on to the next part of the story, we see that all, the, all of this being done, it's finished. The brothers of Jacob are rightly worried about their futures as we look at verses 15 through 21. And as I mentioned in the opening, we can, we can understand how they would have felt here. A lot has happened in the lives of the brothers. 
Think about what they did to Joseph. It was terrible. Absolutely terrible. Certainly, we can understand their apprehension regarding the kindness he has shown to them so far. It was easy for him to be nice to them. He, he wanted to see his father again. And once they were reunited, Joseph wouldn't want to risk disappointing his dad. The favored kid, the favorite child, doesn't ever want to upset the parent that loves him the most, right? That's just the way this works. They, the favorite child would never risk losing that status. But now none of that matters because Jacob is dead. Jacob's body is in the cave in Machpelah. They're getting ready for the revenge that they've been waiting for to finally come. Sure, they hugged it out with Joseph when they met each other again. Joseph wept. They were united. Oh, that's a great story. Joseph even said that it was God's plan all along, but you never know what's going to happen when there's a change in their lives. Remember, Joseph isn't the one on whom the promise rests. He is not the heir Judah is. We just heard about that, that blessing that Jacob gave. Judah is the blessed one on whom the promise rests. But, but Joseph, with his position of power, he could easily come in, wipe all of it out, and make himself the one who is the only remaining heir. He could do this without question. Look how much Pharaoh likes him, how he sees him and holds him in high esteem. All of this must have run through the minds of the brothers. But what we see is that the brothers are worried about their status with Joseph, and so they send him a message saying that Jacob wanted Joseph to forgive their transgressions against him. Now, we don't know if this is true or not. We don't have any record in Genesis other than what is said here. We don't know if Jacob really said this to them. They could be making it up. Regardless, it shows us their concern for their own safety. And once again, we see Joseph weep. Like I said before, this, this guy cries a lot. Uh, Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet in Scripture, but we could call Joseph the weeping patriarch or something like that. He cries more than anybody I can think of in Scripture. But what this lets us know is that Joseph has a deep, emotional understanding of what God has done in his life. It is one thing to believe intellectually in the providence of God, right? It's one thing to say, oh, God works everything together for us. But it's entirely a different thing to truly believe it deep down to your core and to trust in it despite all the terrible things that are happening to you. Joseph feels these things deep down. This is more than something he is just saying he has not only studied the providence of God, Joseph has experienced it in perhaps the most difficult way possible. And he has come out on the other side of these things fully trusting in the plan of God. Even though he has his brothers on their knees before him saying that, hey, we're your servants, he doesn't take advantage of it. Instead, he gives them a theology lesson, doesn't he? Look at the two important things that he says to them here. First, he reminds them that he is not their judge. He has no intention of trying to play, take the place of God as their judge. He does not want to put himself in that place over them, even though he definitely has the power to do so. And secondly, he goes back to this big theme 
that I've been talking about, the providence of God. He tells his brothers that they meant to do him harm, but yet God worked it together for good. And not just the good of their little clan. It saved countless lives because the stored food that brought his family to safety was also food for others to survive. This wasn't just for the people of God to survive. There's also a common grace sense of what Joseph is talking about here. Of course, this was to preserve the covenant line. Of course it was. But it also did good for a great number of people who were outside the covenant. Joseph understands the hand of God on his life, and he humbly acknowledges that his pain was for good and for God's glory. Because he's not judged and God has providentially provided for them, he comforts them with assurances that he will provide not only for his brothers, but for their families. And of course, this is again a providential blessing of God. Joseph, in this position of power, is causing the people of God to be fruitful and to multiply, and they will become a great multitude just as God has promised them would happen. And as the passage closes up, we see that Joseph trusts in this providence of God as we look at verses 22 through 26. And what we see is that even beyond the famine, Joseph continues to be blessed, and so does the house of his father Jacob. We read that Joseph lived a long, full life. He was even a great, great grandfather. And we read that as he approaches death, he makes a statement of faith just as his father did. Remember, they have been out of the land of Canaan for a good, long while now. They have been doing very well for themselves in the land of Goshen. By earthly standards, they could have easily said, hey, this is the promised land. Look how well we've done here. There's food for our flocks. We have multiplied. We are being fruitful. This must be the promised land because we are doing well here. This is the luscious land in Egypt where our flocks can graze. This is the good life, folks. Let's stay. Let's find a way to settle in here. And we don't need to worry about this supposed promise of God anymore to have the land of Canaan. What do we need Canaan for? We've got Goshen, boys and girls. This is better. Let's live it up and forget about leaving. But Joseph speaks prophetically to remind his people of the promise of God. Now notice that it says he speaks to his brothers here. Now this could be that his brothers outlived him, but more likely it means that he is speaking to all the tribes of Israel that bear the names of his brothers. So that they would know that this land was not their home. Goshen is not their home. He does the same thing that we saw his father do in the previous chapter. He has them swear an oath about his final resting place. But this is different than what was done for Jacob. He's not asking to be transported upon his death and after a waiting period of 40 days for embalming and 70 days for uh, mourning and grieving and to cart him to Canaan with a funeral procession like no other. Imagine, I mean, it was amazing for Jacob. Imagine what it would have been like for Joseph. That's not what he's asking for here. The oath sworn to Joseph contained a prophetic word, or sworn by Joseph, contained a prophetic word 
And it says that God is going to visit them. This is not just something that they are to do, to check off a list and then come back to Goshen. They will do this when God makes it clear that they are to relocate. There's a continued hope here in the providence of God. He has led them into Egypt, yes, but this is not their home. They will be visited upon by God, and then they will leave the land, and they're to take Joseph's body with them. Joseph, like his father, trusts in the promise of God, even beyond his earthly years. And we see that they embalm Joseph and put him in a coffin. The promise of God is waiting to be fulfilled, but the promise is not dead. The promise is not in that coffin. Joseph prophetically states that God will visit them. And Joseph believes that he will keep that promise. God keeps his promises. And as we close up this passage, and as we close up the book of Genesis, I I want us to think back quickly on these 50 chapters. That's a lot of chapters, but from beginning to end, we have seen that God is a God who keeps his promises. That is who he is. That's what God does. God kept his promise to Jacob, to Isaac, to Abraham. And he provided an ark of salvation for Noah to keep his promise. And we know these stories. They're Sunday school favorites. But as we dug deeper, we were reminded of the deeper story. When our first parents fell into sin, God made a promise to them and to all of humanity that in His mercy, He would provide one who would crush the head of the serpent. Way back in Genesis 3, we we saw this promise and we have seen the unfolding story of God keeping that promise from generation to generation. And not only keeping the promise, but it points us forward to the person and to the work of Jesus Christ. As you and I consider the book of Genesis, we see how God does everything, everything, to bring salvation to His covenant people. And now, because you and I have been united to Christ, we are the covenant people of God. And just as His hand of providence preserved His people in the book of Genesis, we have a sure promise that He will eternally preserve us. The unfolding plan of God includes you and I and the salvation that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. It shows us the love of God and how He alone is the One who saves us. And so, may we look back on our time in Genesis and may we have full confidence of the salvation that He has brought to us, and may we offer our lives to Him that all glory might go to Him alone for His saving hand upon us, His covenant people. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Edgerton First Reformed. For more information on First Reformed, navigate to our website, edgertonfrc.org, or our Facebook page.